Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Verda, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, July 22nd. We're going to do more in the next 20 minutes than some treasonists do in 187 minutes, if you catch my drift. What we're going to do is talk about physician compensation thanks to a new survey and a new study. The new survey comes from Merritt Hawkins, the physician staffing firm, and the new study comes from researchers at the Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. To tell us what the survey and study findings mean for the healthcare industry and for healthcare consumers are Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital, and Gaurav Dayal, CEO of Axia Women's Health. Gaurav has been subbing for Dave Johnson for the past few weeks while Dave is away on a well-deserved break from trying to fix the healthcare system. That's exhausting. Hi, Julie. Hi, Gaurav. How are you guys doing this morning? Julie? Doing well. I'm in New York. I've seen a bunch of people in 3D, so that brings a lot of energy. And healthcare is back in the news, so what's made for a better week? That's great. Thank you. Gaurav, how are you? I'm doing well, David. Good morning to you and Julie. I'm in Traverse City, Michigan uh, for some work, and uh, it's it's a beautiful Lake Michigan morning out here and excited the last good few days. Thanks, Gaurav. Now, before we talk about the latest data on physician compensation, I wanted to ask you about physician appointment wait times. I bumped into a friend of mine who told me that her son had to wait three months to see a neurologist after he had a unexplained grand mal seizure. And uh, if you're a parent, that's certainly three months too long. Julie, have you or anyone uh, you know experienced longer than usual wait times to see a specialist? Well, I know I've had to wait three months and then had to reschedule and wait another two months for a mammogram. So that feels a little Canadian to me. And I have heard these stories. There's a backup out there. Interesting. Thank you. Gaurav, how about you? Have you or anyone you know waited weeks, if not months, to see a specialist? Most definitely. My father has for a lot of things. You get to get something basic as an EMRI. It took several months. Look, much of this was related to COVID and I think just labor shortages as well as backup and scheduling. I would say that beyond specialists, PCP wait times are even longer. So I think this is just a systematic issue that we all have to deal with. Yeah, interesting. There's definitely a maldistribution of physician manpower in the market right now, that's for sure. And that could help explain our first topic today, and that's the new physician recruitment and retention report from Merritt Hawkins. The company surveyed about 2,700 doctors and advanced practitioners for the report. The report says the average starting salaries for 14 of the 20 specialties surveyed went up this year. Six went down. OBGYNs enjoyed the biggest increase, up 14% to $332,000. Interventional cardiologists suffered the biggest decrease, down 16% to $611,000. The bottom line is most medical specialists are making more money this year. Julie, what's driving the increase for most doctors? What does it tell you about the physician labor market? And what does it mean for patients? Well, it is pretty fascinating because years ago, PCPs were in much higher demand for hospitals and medical groups. So this shift is definitely a complete about face for search for specialists. And the AMN report said that 64% of the search engagements were for specialists compared to 17% for primary care physicians. So it's pretty significant. 
I also said that virtually every hospital and large medical group in the country is looking to add physicians. And that's a direct quote from an AMN executive. So this is a pretty pervasive issue. Here's what seems to be happening. In 2023, so next year, for the first time in our history in the United States, there'll be more seniors in the U.S. than children 17 and under. So the boomers have definitely arrived. And we need more specialists to care for ailing internal organs and musculoskeletal conditions and neurological issues. And what we know about seniors who represent roughly 15% of the population is that they use more services. And to wrap some numbers around it, CDC tells us that that 15% of the population uses 37.4% of the diagnostic tests, 34% of inpatient procedures, and twice the number of annual physician visits that younger patients do. So this is being looked at very much as a boomer-driven issue. Meanwhile, I look at all the virtual models that are coming up, and when you really look at them, there are several that are looking at disrupting specialty care, but the vast majority have really been looking at new models, whether they're boutique bricks and mortar or virtual models in primary care. So it's not like this is necessarily a digital health-driven issue. So a couple of other things I found interesting. Academic medical centers accounted for 34% of these search engagements, which is up 20% over last year and 11% over the last five years. So this 34% is pretty significant. And it makes me really wonder like, wow, maybe AMCs are really actually starting to shift their business models and starting to really develop more of you know a community care approach. They've been hit by the great resignation and retirement and all that, but these numbers aren't just about burnout. They're about something I'm sort of hoping <laughs> bigger. The other fascinating thing I saw was that nurse practitioners were at the top of the search list for the second year in a row. So PCPs have fallen, specialists have risen, and nurse practitioners are at the top. And that's because we're finally realizing that we can use other types of clinicians for some of these new bricks and mortar or virtual models, and frankly, just at doctor's offices as well. But you know, care is shifting, so we can use different levels of care in different sites of care. So pretty interesting report, I have to say. Had it. Yeah, I'm a boomer and I'll try to stay as healthy as possible. So no one has to hire a medical specialist for me. We'll see what happens. Thanks, Julie. Agoroff, any questions for Julie? I think that was a great summary, Julie, of the compensation survey. I did have a question for you. Like we, you know, as VBC value-based care geeks love talking about, you know, the shift of value. But when you look at these compensation models, in fact, they they may support the opposite. Proceduralists and specialists have gone up. Now, to be fair, it's a one-year blip and who knows what next year holds, but definitely over this year, it seems like the momentum is shifting towards that. How do we reconcile that with the fact that we broadly think the country's moving towards a much more primary care-centric model, a much more value-based care-centric model? <laughs> okay, so my simple cynical mind just goes to, I think we are seeing several hospitals and medical groups perhaps not shifting in the way that you and I and several others have started to really see this shift happening. And our population is shifting. So perhaps we're seeing a population shift ahead of the business model transformation shift we should be feeling. Interesting. Thanks, Julie. And that's a great transition into the second topic, and that's this new study that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, the researchers looked at how four different payment models 
affect the compensation of primary care physicians by gender. The four models are productivity-based fee-for-service, capitation based on patient panel size, capitation based on risk-adjusted patient panel size, and a hybrid of productivity-based fee-for-service and risk-adjusted capitation. In the first two models, female primary care docs made about $60,000 less a year than their male counterparts, and that gap grew in the third and fourth models, up to about $80,000 less in the hybrid model and up to about $90,000 less in the risk-adjusted capitation model. Uh, Gruff, are you surprised by the results? Uh, what do you think's going on here? And what does it say about changes we need in value-based payment models to make compensation between male and female doctors more equitable? And try to do that in two minutes or less. Yeah, so David, I'm not surprised because this is not new news. I mean, there's, this has been a current issue. And I think overarchingly, we have to acknowledge this systemic gender bias and compensation period across every industry and healthcare and physicians are not immune to that. That's obviously multifactorial. It's embedded in a lot of root causes and we just need to get over and fix this. Specific to this study, I would say a few things. I think the overarching theme in my mind is that ultimately, regardless of the compensation model, fee-for-service or value-based care, and they have a few nuances between value-based care, the key driver is productivity. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the details of the study, a lot of the differences in pay, even when women doctors, primary care doctors are working the same amount of hours, is because they are seeing fewer patients and spending more time with patients. I think most of us would think that's a good thing. It also appears that they are driving better outcomes. However, the reimbursement model is not reflective of that. The reimbursement model is still churning through patients, seeing more, and frankly, not caring that much about outcomes. It's interesting that we see the same thing in capitation. And I think that the logic there is that panel sizes, again, drive reimbursement. So you could be in a fully value-based care model, but if you're spending more time with patients and driving more outcomes while you're doing that or driving better outcomes, you may have a smaller panel size, which will then be ultimately reflected in your compensation. I think that we really have to figure out where this balance lies. And to be fair, there is a balance, right? I mean, we want to have productivity metrics that compensate people more for doing more. But at the same time, we have to balance this out with the fact that spending time with patients is valuable. Driving better outcomes is invaluable. And how do we balance these two things? So I think if you look at the study, it really is more around flaws in our current reimbursement model which is, I think, compounded with gender bias issues that exist in compensation across the board. Interesting. So paying for outcomes could be the answer to a more equitable pay scales. Thanks, Gaurav. Julie, any questions for Gaurav? Gaurav, how do we fix this interpretation? And are there some levers of balance that you think about as a physician or now as someone who is trying to run a company that can function at a decent margin and do good? Look, it's a tough question, Julian. It's a good one. I would say two things. One is there is definitely a balance. I'm not for a moment going to say that productivity measures don't matter. Let's take to an extreme, extreme situation. Like if you spend three hours with the patient and see two patients a day, well, that's just not a viable business model. On the other hand, if you're spending three minutes with the patient and just checking the box and not doing anything meaningfully to intervene in their health or wellness, that's not good either. Where is this in between? I think as David mentioned, Paying for outcomes is what really we should be doing. 
the challenge becomes how do we start determining this? For example, not all patients are the same. We have different severity indexes, different chronicity indexes, different ages, as you mentioned earlier in our patient panels. How do we figure out a reimbursement model that actually encapsulates all of this? That's a big challenge. At the moment, I think the best balance I can think of is some level of a hybrid between productivity metrics, which are actually much easier to determine, and couple that with outcomes. And in leading organizations, the compensation model is shifting towards a mix of these two things. So I'll just make up breakdowns. It could be that it's 70% based on productivity, but 30% based on outcomes. And over time, that 70-30 shift becomes 50-50 and maybe 30-70. I I think we're going in that direction, probably slower than I would want to go, but surely a lot more around outcomes than it was a decade ago. Interesting. I hope you're right. Julie, anything else on that? I was just actually going to ask Gaurav a different question. Gaurav, you shared this interesting article about CEO compensation. And Gaurav, I don't know if you saw this, but Oak Street Health was the only company in the top 10 where the CEO earned some extraordinary amount of money, which I think was mostly based on stock. All the rest were device, diagnostic, pharma CEOs, except for Sigma. How do you think about now that you're the CEO leading one of the private practices, how do you think about some of the CEO compensation that you see out there and how that's interpreted when we talk about things like physician compensation like this? Yeah, I have not seen the article. I do know Oak Street fairly well just through past lives. And I think you're absolutely right. I would imagine they had a pretty significant IPO and successful IPO, at least when it came out. So I would imagine most of that compensation is driven by that. Look, to some extent, I would say the founders that are built a business, a good business from scratch, it's been successful, it's providing good care. And if the stock market wants to value that at a certain level, that's what the market does. In many ways around your question around compensation, there are different markets in many ways. Like the folks who are running a device company or a pharma company are competing for different jobs than the average fill-in-the-blank specialist or primary care doc. So there's definitely a disconnect. And I think CEO compensation in this country has been a topic of multiple discussions. It definitely continues to accelerate faster than the rate of inflation and at a much higher multiple than the average worker in those companies. I think, again, that's a broader issue, but it's something that is going to get highlighted more and more in healthcare because we are seeing a lot more public traded healthcare companies, primary care, hospital systems, specialty groups. And I think it's going to continue to raise this issue around the intersection of privatization in healthcare versus what is often viewed to be a societal or a government service to people. CEO compensation is always a great topic for reporters and journalists. Thank you both. Now let's briefly talk about other news this week. Gaurav, what other healthcare news broke this week that's important to mention? Oh, the biggest news this week in my mind was Amazon's acquisition of One Medical. And I think what happened is Jeff Bezos heard our podcast last week and said, wow, (laughs) I thought that was somewhat unexpected, but maybe not. Going to our podcast from last week, we did talk about this ongoing large players getting into care delivery. And second, uh, the importance of physical locations for care delivery being still the primary modality of care delivery. And I think Amazon has taken a big move in the direction with buying a predominantly physical clinical practice. And I think it'll be an interesting thing to see how this plays out. Yeah, thanks, Gaurav. Julie, how about you? One Medical is your big story this week, too? 
Oh my gosh. I've thought of nothing else and talked about nothing else since that announcement came out. And a couple of comments. One, since I live in Seattle, I know a lot of Amazon employees. And one of them said to me, well, I guess we're really in healthcare now because <laughs> I think the sentiment <laughs> at Amazon has always been, are we really in healthcare? Is this really our thing? I have heard some thought leaders in the industry call it the acquisition of Blockbuster. And it's really about the clinics that they bought and not about them going to virtual care, which I think is you know one interesting thought. I think I've seen other CEOs of virtual care companies look at it as an endorsement of their models because Amazon's really supporting hybridization with this model. I do think it's interesting to think about the parallels with their driving people to Whole Foods and now their ability to take their consumers and drive people into one medical and how they can you know shape their own their own model, frankly, that that creams the worried well off the top. So it's fascinating. Like Gorov, I didn't fully expect it, but we shouldn't be surprised. We've been talking about this kind of move for years, and this is the beginning of technology actually getting into care provision. We're going to all think back about that day yesterday and mark that as the day when everything changed. It is fascinating because when I go to amazon.com to look at. So there's always Amazon choice, right? For ink cartridges or whatever. Like, is that going to be for colonoscopies, right? You've got a page of places you can get a colonoscopy, (laughs) but there's an Amazon choice, right? (laughs) And if you get it in the next few days, the price will be X. It will be fascinating to see how it plays out. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Gorov. And Gorov, a special thanks to you for sitting in for Dave Johnson for the past three weeks. I hope it wasn't too painful and uh, we'd love to have you back. Yes. Oh, it's been a thrill. You know, I met Dave Johnson, I think over a decade ago at what used to be back then, Intermountain Innovation Conference, and it was love at first sight. So we have been close since then and he has very big shoes for me to fill, but I look forward to this and Julie and I go way back as well. So it's always fun reconnecting with friends. When Dave goes to the South Pole, I'll be happy (laughs) to be here for him. So thank you for having me. And it's been a blast. You've been fantastic to work with. I really appreciate your perspective. It's been great. Thanks, Gaurav. And we do look forward to having you back. And that is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And if you follow our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming service, you'll get notified each time a new episode is available. Don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.